Hi, and welcome to this edition of Princeton Alumni Weekly's podcast. I'm Carrie Compton, and with me is Brian Walsh, class of 2001. Brian worked for Time Magazine as a foreign correspondent, a reporter, and an editor. And today he is the editor of Medium's science publication called One Zero. Today we're here to discuss his new book called End Times, A Brief Guide to the End of the World, Asteroids, Supervolcanoes, Rogue Robots, and more. Brian, thanks so much for making the time to come to campus and record this podcast with us. It's great to be here. So I want to start by saying that your book might sound a little bit like a downer, but having read it, I just um, really thought it had a really strong commentary about the resilience of the human condition. I think that a lot of that got set up for me in the tone of your introduction, where you established two facts. One, as humans, we have a sort of innate inability to conceive of our own demise, let alone the demise of our entire species. We also have a tough time thinking about our place on the planet along geological lines, which is to say the entire existence of the planet, we are but a nanosecond. Kind of set that up for our readers, too, about what does existential mean for us humans? It's Yeah, it is very difficult, I think, for us to conceive of that. And in part, it's a fact that we tend to focus on risks or threats that feel most available to us. You know, So we, we focus on what the media might be telling us. We focus on what's happening in our own lives. And that can kind of go either way. You know, we can sometimes focus on threats that aren't really that big a deal because they get reported on a lot. But we can also miss things that are that are actually quite important just because we have no experience of them. And obviously, since we're all here, uh, we've never really experienced a true existential threat. And that means really a catastrophe bad enough to cause human extinction or something very close to it. Um, so, you know, the very fact that we've never experienced it makes it hard to make it feel real. And even though most of the, the risks I deal with here, you know, I, as the subtitle suggests, you know, things like asteroids, supervolcanoes, uh, those are just the natural ones. They're very, very, very unlikely. You know, they, they happen only occasionally over the course of a very long history of the planet. You know, very unlikely, very, very unlikely, not the same thing as zero. But we as human beings tend to conflate those two. We don't really do well with the unexpected or the, the things that could come out of nowhere. Right. Um, and then when we look at that long period of history – um, you know, we as people, obviously, you know, if we live 100 years, that's quite a while. Um, as a civilization, we're looking at like 10,000 years maybe. As a species, just a couple hundred thousand years. And that's tiny, tiny, tiny amount of time based on the 4.5, 4.6 billion year history of the planet. And a lot of things can happen in the course of that time. And so it's where the collision between our short time human experience versus the very long experience of the planet when those two things clash, that's why we look at this and we can't really imagine this possible. And we need to because you have to take them seriously and see them as real before we can actually begin to do something about them. Mm -hmm. So in your book, you outline eight possible events that could possibly lead to human extinction. Um, let's do one by one. Mm -hmm. And then I'd like to hear why you decided to include each one mm -hmm. and also um, the various prescriptive measures that you kind of cover in the book about possibly adverting some of these. Mm -hmm. So we'll start with asteroids. Asteroids are the real cinematic one. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's not just because we've had movies like Armageddon or Deep Impact uh, that really, you know, seared themselves into our consciousness. But um, when we think of something coming to get us that's natural, I think an asteroid from the sky really fits the bill. Um, that's what did in the dinosaurs for the most part 66 million years ago. And, you know, we, we it makes it seems real to us. Um, Actually, though, the funny thing about them is that they're the risk that I'm least worried about. Mm. And that's in part because they're really infrequent, uh, at least on the scale that we're looking at, where you're talking about a collision with an asteroid many miles wide, you know, three or four or five, six miles wide. Mm. Um, and that's like, you know, millions and millions of years past before that could happen. 
but also because we're actually doing something about them. You know, and, and that was really quite exciting for me to see. Um, starting in the 90s, NASA really en- embarked on a program called Space Guard that had astronomers looking and tracking and finding all of the larger asteroids out there that might potentially hit the Earth. Hmm. Um, and I spent some time uh, at the Catalina Sky Survey outside Tucson, Arizona, overnight with people who do that work. They, hmm. They're looking through these telescopes, searching for near-Earth objects, tracking them, tagging them. And because you can calculate their orbits, you know where they'll be in the future. Mm-hmm. So that makes them predictable in a way that really know where the threat is. If one's actually coming at us, we have something we can do about them. Um, there are ways we think to deflect them. Um, and deflect makes it sound like, you know, it's it's like Missile Command, the old arcade game, and you're going to shoot them out of the sky. It doesn't quite work that way. Um, what you really want to do is uh, asteroids and the Earth are both on an orbital path. They're both circling the sun. And if they're going to collide, it's almost like two cars merging on a highway that, that meet each other. One has to give way. Mm. So you're not going to slow down the Earth. The Earth is too big. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can slow down an asteroid. And you can do that in a number of ways. Um, you can shoot a laser on it that would kind of change its momentum. You can actually ram into it uh, with a spacecraft or a satellite of some sort. And you can use nuclear bombs. And again, if you've seen Armageddon, you kind of know how that worked. And while everything about that movie was wrong, <laughs> up to and including – it would have made a lot more sense to train the astronauts to drill the asteroid than train the oil drillers to travel to the space, as Ben Affleck himself pointed out in the, uh, I think in the director notes. Um, you know, it's it's you actually would actually put the, the the bomb in the asteroid and then blow it up that way, and you don't break it into pieces, but rather that gives it more force and that slows it down more. Mm. And so that's pretty exciting. Like when you think about the fact that asteroids have been hitting the Earth forever, you mm-hmm. know, it, it's a real risk that could happen, we can actually stop that. And that's exciting. You know, that to me starts off the book in a way that says like, okay, even something literally the hammer from space, we human beings are now in the position to do something about it if we take it seriously, if we do the kind of funding and, and programs we need to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Volcanoes. Yeah. Volcanoes. <laughs> Volcanoes are great. Volcanoes are the one no one really realizes coming. Um, and they're actually considered by existential risk experts to be the biggest natural risk we face, more so than asteroids. And that's because they happen more frequently. I talk about supervolcanoes, and that's yeah. a specific class. Um, volcanoes are ranked on what's called the Volcanic Explosivity Index, which is just a Richter scale for volcanoes, one to eight, eight being the, the highest. That's a supervolcano. Hmm. Um, they really only occur every few 10,000 years, so you know, 20,000, 30,000 years, which seems like a lot. You know, You could fit basically three times of human civilization in that time period. But on a planetary scale, that's actually pretty frequent. Um, mm. A supervolcano would be the equivalent of like a few hundred Mount St. Helens, if you remember that from 1980, all blowing up at the same time mm. for weeks on end. But also you have sulfur and debris and soot put into the atmosphere, and that would actually dim the sky. So you'd have really rapid cooling, what's called a volcanic winter. And that's where the real killing effects would have. You know, you'd actually would see, um, you'd actually see temperatures drop. You know, fifteen degrees, sixteen, seventeen degrees Fahrenheit. Possibly, you would not be able to farm as well. You would potentially be looking at something like global starvation, and that's that's scary. You know, and and the chance of that happening, you know, again within our lifetime or our children's lifetime, very, 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 very low. But you know, there's about twenty of those out there. One of them is Yellowstone. So. Really what we could do there is try to prepare. We can monitor these. We can see them coming, which is important. So if you you knew Yellowstone was likely to erupt over the course of the next you know, six months, you could take steps to prepare the food you'd need. Uh, you could obviously evacuate people. Um, but that's one where, you know, the earth is a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. And we forget that because we've been lucky enough to live over the last <clears throat> 10,000 years 
in a very stable climate for the most part, you know, very conducive to human civilization. No guarantee that continues forever. Past performance is no guarantee of future success. So while it's not something I really worry about that much, it's definitely something that's real and, and something you have to watch out for. Okay. Nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are the one, like, if the world were to end right now, us, you and I talking right now, that would probably be it. And it's something we've kind of put out of our mind. You mm. know, um, I'm 41 years old, which meant, like, I lived and grew up in the last stage of the Cold War. And that was real. You know, I mean, people worried about that. We had fallout shelter still. Um then the Cold War ended, and it seemed like that risk went away. Um, it never did, really, though. Even during the years when relations between the U.S. and Russia were at their best, I'd say, um, those missiles were still pointed at each other. They were still ready to go at a, at a moment's notice. And, of course, what we've seen over the last few years is, is those relations get worse and worse. Um, and instead of uh, these two countries and, and the other countries obviously getting nuclear weapons, you know, agreeing to reduce warheads further, we're seeing both nations really amp up their nuclear programs. Mm. The U.S. is doing that, spending hundreds of billions of dollars to modernize and introduce new weapons. The Russians are doing something similar. The U.S. just pulled out uh, recently this summer out of the Intermediate Missile Test Ban Treaty, which raises the risk a lot. Um, and then you see, of course, new players like North Korea with mm -hmm. these weapons, or you see India and Pakistan, two, three, you know, two countries that have fought multiple wars that both have nuclear weapons. Um, and again, if, if that were to happen, You'd have devastation where, where these occurred uh, to a degree we can't even imagine, but um, you'd also have that same nuclear winter, sort of similar to the volcanic winter effect. Um, and what's scary is that, you know, it's not that someone would try to win a nuclear war or start one on purpose necessarily, but it's very easy for things to spiral out of control. Um, mm -hmm. We saw multiple times in the Cold War where people, there was a mistake, you know, there, there was a computer error that almost resulted in, in, in an exchange um, that could happen again. Um, you could have a situation where, you know, one country makes an aggressive move and the other responds in a way that the, the first country didn't expect. Um, and there's no defense against them. And it's just something that is really worries me. Um, it's not on the public's radar in the same way. Um, I feel like we've kind of put it out of our mind, but we shouldn't. Um, and it's also really represents the first time that humans could do this. Mm. Before that, we were worried about, you know, Asteroid, asteroids coming from the sky or supervolcanoes beneath our feet. On uh, you know July 16th, 1945, when the Trinity test occurred, the first nuclear bomb explosion, that was when humans sort of entered the game. Suddenly we can destroy ourselves. And things are never the same after that. Um, and it's, you know, it's only, only led to other ones we'll be talking about later on in the podcast, like new kind of risks all coming from what human beings can do. Mm -hmm. So climate change, this is one that you've got a lot of experience with from your reporting. Mm. And um, this is also kind of like the, the specter of nuclear mm. weapons as well, because it's somewhat man-made. Mm. But this one is kind of also in conjunction with our natural planet as well. So talk about mm. talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> Not that we really need to fun. talk about it anymore. It's a really but, fun yeah. subject to talk about. Um, and yeah, I did spend years reporting on this. And, and climate change, you're right. I think, you know, a generation could really only focus on one of these at a time. Um, and younger people, people younger than me or, you know, older than me, this is the one they focus on. Um, and it's, it is very real. And it's also different than the other risks in that, you know, a nuclear war happens or it doesn't. You know, an asteroid hits us or it doesn't hit us. Climate change is always happening. It's been happening for some time. It will continue to happen. Um, it will be a continuum of, of destruction, essentially. You know, and we can re we can begin to predict some of it. We can control some of it, um, but it's not sort of binary in the way these others these other are, and that's kind of makes it hard to deal with. Um, at the same time, you know, what I found was that it's it's not you know you, uh, there's been more recently I think this 
a sense that you know we're on a real clock that if we can't um, zero out carbon emissions or drastically reduce them over the next 12 years or so, that's it. It's over, and that's that's not true. Um, you know, for climate change to be truly existential risk, it would have to be on the very high end of how bad it could get, and that would that would two things would need to happen there. We'd really have to do almost nothing. You know, really almost purposely not reduce carbon emissions, not even accidentally. Um, and then the climate would also have to respond in the most extreme way to what we're doing. Mm. Um, I don't think that's very likely. I think that's sort of at the far end of the of the likelihood scale. Um, but at the same time, you know, it may happen. Um, and it's going to make other things a lot worse. You know, um, so what worries me in some ways is it's not just the climate change itself is going to cause a lot of death and devastation, which it will. But it will be a destabilizing factor across the board, which then makes other risks more likely. It makes it more likely you'll have a terrible pandemic. It makes it more likely you could have a nuclear war, for instance. Mm. Um, And what's challenging here is that it's completely within our power to do something about it. But it – I really looked at it as a way to sort of examine why it is we don't act on these. Because climate change is the most famous example of a risk we don't act on, or at least Mm -hmm. not really, or not Mm -hmm. enough. And that's in part because climate change is always pitched towards the future. Um, you know, the carbon we emit right now will be in the atmosphere for decades, even centuries in the future, which means that um, we are now affecting the climate for people who are not even born yet. Um, and it's tough because we don't really take the future seriously. You know, we don't even take our own personal future seriously. Like I have an example of the book where you can put yourself in an fMRI tube and ask yourself to think about you right now a certain part of your brain that's sort of associated with identity will light up very, you know, very strongly. If you think about yourself 20 years from now, it'll light up less so. Mm. And that's because your you own person in the future is kind of a stranger to you. Mm-hmm. And then when you think about, you know, people you don't even have a connection to in the future, then it just it doesn't exist. It's like it, they don't matter to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reality is that's the way economics works. We don't really value the future. And the further out we go, the less we value it. Um, and climate change requires us really to make present-day actions or sacrifices to benefit the future, which is just not something we tend to do. Again, we don't even do it for ourselves, really. Otherwise, we'd all save a lot more in our 401k. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, I went to – in the course of reporting, you know, both this book and back when I was uh, at Time magazine, you know, going to conferences like Copenhagen, UN conferences, and just – we'd get close and then it would just stop. And a lot of reasons for that, a lot of political denialism, a lot of oil industry um, – people pushing against this. But at the end of the day, human beings just are not really good at thinking about that, which is why, you know, most likely we'll end up going some sort of, you know, shortcut route, you know, it could be geoengineering, could be something like that. Anything that allows us to like, just act now as opposed to plan for the long term, which we're just not going to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So diseases, Um, you, one of the things I found interesting was that you said that actually smallpox is could be our worst nightmare as it was for generations before us, um, or a super flu. So yeah, so tell me about where you see diseases fitting into this. So disease, um, you know, it seems very ordinary, but it's, you know, infectious disease has killed more human beings than anything else. Any any war, any natural disaster, um, it's the way we've generally gone. Um, and it continues. It hasn't, you know, on one hand, we've, we've you know, we've created vaccines, we've created antibiotics that has really reduced the cost of a lot of these diseases. And we're continuing to do that, which is really great. At the same time, a more globalized uh, world where we're spreading out into new environments mm. really increases the likelihood of new diseases emerging. You know, really just since the 2000, we've seen a number of completely unprecedented diseases come up. Uh, SARS is one, which I was in Hong Kong to 
report on new kinds of avian flu. Uh, we had a flu pandemic in 2009. We had Zika, obviously. And we've had Ebola really break out in a way we've never seen before. And that's kind of odd because those two things coincide. On one hand, you know, really countering disease. On the other hand, constantly being challenged. And that's going to continue because now, you know, there's no place on earth that is really remote. You know, a new disease can can arise in some unexpected place and you know, in Central Africa or in parts of Asia. And, you know, all it takes is one person getting on a plane and it can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that'll continue, I think. The good news is that disease, diseases that really come out of nature are sort of limited in, in how much they can spread and how virulent they can be. Like, you know, you have something like Ebola, very virulent, kills very high percentage, but hard to spread, you know. And then you often see vice versa, you know, measles, very contagious, generally doesn't kill people, mm. you know, and, and the simple nature of a, a disease out in the wild is it tends to sort of attenuate because that's the nature of evolution. It doesn't want to kill everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not in its interest. So that's a good sign. We're not likely to all be wiped out by something coming out of nature, but it changes if it's something we're making. Well, which brings us to biotechnology, yeah. which is another chapter. Exactly. Biotechnology is my favorite chapter. Okay. Uh, and also the most dangerous risk. It's the one that really worries me the most going forward. You know, beyond obviously, you know, something terrible happening with nuclear war, this is the one that's going to be the most challenging to deal with. And that's because um, we have these new tools, things like gene editing, CRISPR being one of them, synthetic biology, that gives us really the essential power to rewrite the very code of life. And what I had said before about, you know, certain kind of laws of evolution that limit diseases coming out of nature, well, we could override that with these new tools. We could make viruses, you know, said superflu. Uh, that are both very contagious and very deadly. And what's scary is that um, not only can we already begin to do that, but more and more people are able to do that in the future because this is getting cheaper and cheaper. It's a little bit like computer programming. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we're, you know, I think not far from the computer science program here. Um, if you went back here in the 60s or so, you know, you'd see huge mainframes that required you to punch cards to, to program it, really limited what you could do. You know, fast forward to now, everyone can have a computer, they can easily create programs. And as a result, it's very easy to do bad things on computers, you know, to create malware, to create mm-hmm. viruses. That's the direction we're moving with biology. It's getting cheaper and cheaper. It's getting easier and easier and faster and faster. And if you can program biology like you can a computer, you'll be able to do amazing things. We'll create new cures for diseases. We might create new crops that are better for climate change, any number of things. But we'll also be the power to do really terrible things too. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are people out there who will do really terrible things. They might do it on purpose. You know, a terrorists might want to do this. Certainly, it's an incredibly effective weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, or people could do it, you know, accidentally. You know, scientists could be doing work. They already do this work where they enhance viruses to study them better, you know, to sort of see how they might evolve in nature. But in doing that, they raise the risk those could get out. You know, and that happens. Just last month, actually, the U.S. military's top infectious disease research lab was shut down for safety concerns. That's a lab that works with things like Ebola. Oh, so okay. that, yeah, <laughs> not to keep you awake, but like that does happen. And that's that's scary. And, you know, the more and more people who can do this, the harder and harder it will be to control. And, you know, really the better the chance that something goes wrong. Because once you begin to able to break down the nature of life, and then once you can just program it, you can make, um, you know, anything would be going too far, but pretty close. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one thing if, you know, only large companies or countries can do that. Maybe you can control that. But if it's something that you can do in increasingly your garage or your backyard the way you can with computers, then it's very hard to control. And that's when you get a, a really high risk. So the computers brings us to AI. This this seemed really scary to you as well. Mm-hmm. One of those chapters that it seemed that you took very seriously, and, and I sort of went into it not thinking it was as big a threat mm. as you... Yeah, AI is a tricky one because it, it 
it's sort of um, the other ones I all know are real for sure. Like, you know, they may be very unlikely, yeah. you know, like asteroids. Uh, they may, you know, be not as bad as we thought, like disease or even climate change. But AI, it, it might be impossible. Like, it might be impossible to create the kind of, like, artificial general intelligence we all worry about, the Skynet, the things like that, mm-hmm. that could somehow take over. And if that's the case, well, then we're not, we don't really have that much to worry about. But if it is possible and someone will do it, then it's really very risky because if you create something that is more intelligent than you, um, you know, humans are only at the top of the food chain here because we're the smartest species out there, not because we're the strongest or the fastest, just because we're the smartest. And if we are displaced in that, um, you know, look what's happened to so many other species on this planet. You know, we have essentially driven them to extinction, not really generally because we try to, you know, we're not trying to hunt them down or because we don't like gorillas or something, but because we have goals, we want their space, we want their habitat, and it's too bad for them. Mm-hmm. And you could see a situation with a very powerful AI that could be something similar because a, a super intelligence, which is kind of how they classify them, wouldn't just be like, oh, smarter. It's not just like smarter than me the way that Albert Einstein is smarter than me. It's like smarter than like Albert Einstein is than like a, a puppy. That's how vast the difference going to be. And so there's really no way to control that. You know, scientists work on like, AI ethics, AI control with the idea that you might be able to do that. But the reality is if it's possible, I don't see how you do it. It's like it's it's it really is almost out of the question. So you almost have to hope that it's not possible or you hope that people won't do it. But, you know, the the benefit you might get from this, especially if you're the creator, is so great that it's a bit like a, another nuclear arms race mm-hmm. where countries currently – China is definitely doing this, the U.S., companies like Google – uh, Facebook are competing to develop the best AI, and I don't see anything that's likely to make them stop. So, you know, honestly, this is one situation where I kind of hope science isn't as good as it thinks it is, because if it is, we could be in trouble. Um, you know, you can create really impressive AI that's narrowly good at certain things, like playing chess, for instance, or certain kinds of math. Um, what they can't do, you know, that chess playing program can't tell you why it's playing chess. It, it's not able to generalize its skills the way any human, even my two-year-old son can do. Mm. Um, so it may be that that's impossible. You know, maybe there's something in biology that you, know, you need to create that kind of intelligence. Maybe it's not replicable in silicon for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly if, if it were, we'd see things like self-driving cars coming around faster, and that's not the case. So it may simply be that this is beyond our abilities. Um, but at the same time, like what I've learned from studying the history of science is that it's always a mistake to assume something's impossible. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. do this great analogy with the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm indebted to a guy named Luke Mulhauser at the uh, Machine Intelligence Research Institute who has this, who had this idea. You know, Mickey basically like he he's the apprentice. He wants to just get some work done so he can become you know he can take a nap, and so we sort of without really knowing how it works, cast a spell to make the broom you know fill the cauldron for him. And it gets out of control very quickly. You know, he doesn't know how to turn it off. And the, and, the, and he's trying to stop the broom. He's trying to tell the broom not to. But the broom only has one command, fill the cauldron. And right. it, you know, it, won't, it won't be dissuaded from that. Um, and when he tries to destroy it, the broom just keeps going because being killed would be in the way of achieving its goal. And that's not a bad way to think about how an AI might work. Um, we give AI instructions. It's a maximized it's – it's, it's basically you got to think of it as like an efficiency machine. Mm-hmm. And it will find the most efficient means of, of reaching its goal no matter what. And in doing so, it may do things that we think are wrong, inhuman, terrible. Um, but it doesn't have that sort of – those ethical, the ethical guide rails. And it's very hard to program them in. Like it's hard to program a, a computer with ethics because it's hard for us to understand it. You know, think how long we've been working on ethical problems as a species. So – 
you know, are you going to count on um, computer guys to program that in? Like, we haven't figured it out. So right. it's tough to put it into a machine. And so what you have in the role is, result is, like, M- Mickey is kind of activated powers beyond his control. And he, you know, would be <laughs> in a lot of trouble if the sorcerer hadn't shown up at the end of it. But, of course, there is no sorcerer here. It's only us. We're only the apprentices. And that's all we had. And we're kind of playing with powers that might be a little bit beyond our control. Yeah. Sort of like a genie in a Twilight Zone exactly, episode. Yeah, He's going to totally. grant the wish in exactly the one way you hadn't considered yeah, it's it. perverse, perverse in how it plays out, playing out. So uh, my favorite chapter mm-hmm. was the final chapter, um, Aliens, right. was the eighth existential risk. I did. Yeah, I, I quite enjoyed this one because um, – so first off, you know, we think of – this is another place where I think Hollywood plays a role. A lot of movies, Independence Day comes to mind where, you know – Australian aliens come to the earth and it seems like they're going to wipe us out, but then we sort of all come together and beat them. Here's the reality is like if there's a species out there that has the capability to travel across the stars and come to earth and they have hostile intentions, we're done. There's no, there is no fighting back. Like they would be so much more powerful than us. It's, it's a little bit like if like a, a band of like stone age cavemen tried to fight the U S army, but they'd be even bigger than that. So that's one thing. Um, and, you know, we don't know what they'll be like either. They might be so different than us. It's, it's hard to even know. They could even just destroy us accidentally. I mean, we've seen um, civilizations encounter each other here on Earth, um, and often it doesn't go well. You know, the story of the Americas is really essentially that story. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why it would be different with, with, with aliens. Um, and then there's a possibility that uh, they don't exist. And that's a risk in its own way. And, and that's because Right here in, in, in Princeton, actually, uh, over at the Institute for Advanced Study, Enrico Fermi, who's a physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project, among, among other things, he was having lunch with some friends of his, and basically he just sort of burst out, like, where is everybody? And what he's talking about is, like, where are the aliens? Mm-hmm. Huge galaxy. And what we increasingly learn is lots of planets that could potentially support life. That's, that's new, actually. We discovered with some, some new satellites and some new telescopes. And yet no evidence, no signals after decades of searching, no evidence of biology, nothing as far as we can see. Um, now, it's possible we just haven't looked far enough. It's a big galaxy. You know, it's easy to miss. Um, it's possible they're hiding for some reason, which is kind of weird. Who knows? That could be something. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's possible that they don't exist. And it's possible that they did exist and have destroyed themselves. And that's kind of what concerns us there. Mm. It could be that um, civilizations, like when they reach a certain level of technological development, destroy themselves. You know, and if that's the case, say if we find evidence like archaeologists do of civilizations beyond our planet that did exist and are now gone, that would be worrying because it may make us think that could lie in our future. Um, and that's sort of like, that's the twofold nature of that threat. It's both, you know, the possibility that they do exist and they could want to wipe us out. Um, and then probably even more so the possibility that they, you know, their presence or absence indicates some bad sign about our own future species. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the final chapter, well, the penultimate mm-hmm. chapter, deals with survival. And um, that would be a good one to put in your go bag <laughs> for your prepping. Talk about some of the different ways that you could actually mm-hmm. muster through a volcanic winter. Or mm-hmm. um, you had some interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because there's a huge industry in the United States around doomsday prepping. You know, millions of people are involved in this. There are big expos. Um, you know, people ranging from stuff they keep, you know, at home to, you know, vaults that they are now renting out in places like South Dakota or Kansas. They're very rich people who are actually getting their estates in New Zealand, which they think is safe. Although important thing to remember about New Zealand is that it's actually the site of the last supervolcano eruption. So <sighs> it's not the most safe place in the world. It's just, it's, it's, that's a very nice last sheet. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the reality is you can't really prepper yourself past the kind of catastrophes I'm talking about here. Mm-hmm. These are, 
global ones that will last for years. There is no way to go out into the mountains and, you know, with your own supplies and stay safe. It really requires us to come together as a species. One way is to look at it as like how will we feed ourselves? Because in the case of volcanoes, asteroids, nuclear war, they all sort of share that winter aspect where temperatures drop significantly, farming becomes very difficult. We have the problem of who to, how to feed survivors. Um, and so I talked to a few people who have done some very interesting research around like, well, we could grow a lot of mushrooms off of the trees that would actually die in this winter, and that could actually be scaled up. Um, we could eat insects, which I've done before. It's not awful. A lot of people do it now. Mm-hmm. Rats grow very fast, and they don't like the sun, so they could be useful. Uh, you could even actually grow a form of algae uh, sort of, you know, and bacteria processed via natural gas. There's all, all these sort of things. And the key here is that you need to think about it now. Mm. It's not a matter of like storing enough food because, you know, if you weren't trying to feed all these survivors just with stuff you stored, it would take, you know, 40, you know, stack food up to the moon and back 40 times over. Um, you know, what you need to do is figure out ways to actually deal with the aftermath. And that's where planning comes in. So you can do that. Uh, and there are some people working on that right now. And it'd be great if we saw more support for that. Um, really sort of extreme efforts is you could actually create sort of these vaults or refuges, um, not for after the fact, but actually before so. Like imagine you sort of selected like out of a draft, like 5,000 people that represented a variety of uh, backgrounds and skills and said, okay, for a year, you guys are going to go down there. And just in case anything happens to the rest of us, you'll be here to like come back up and restart civilization. That sounds insane. I understand that. I'm not sure anyone would really volunteer for that. But, you know, that would be a very effective way because then you, you know, you guarantee that the future goes on. And that's super important because it's not just about us, the end of the world. It's really about the future you won't have otherwise. Because, you know, look, there's 7.7 billion of us. Something terrible happens. We all go extinct. That's very bad for us, clearly. But you lose far more people. Like if you didn't have that event, you would have billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions, maybe more people who would live. And you lose them if you go extinct. That's where the responsibility for us right now really comes in. Mm. It's not just about keeping ourselves safe. It's about ensuring that there is a future for all of humanity. Um, and that's one way to do so is almost like, you know, a bank uh, only for human beings and human skills. Mm-hmm. So you could do that too. Or lastly, if you're like Jeff Bezos, uh, another graduate here, you can send us all into space. And that means we'll be safe up there, which I don't quite agree with because, you know, space is really hard. Like you'd have to really screw Earth up a lot before space is a better place to live. Right. Um, so I don't really look at it the way that he does or Elon Musk, I think, as like a, a like a refuge from existential risk. But I do agree that the idea is we will we should keep expanding. I think that's important. You know, that is where our destiny lies. We continually grow. We continually innovate. So, you know, by all means, send me up, but not the expectation that I'm going to, you know, live the rest of my life there because I like Earth a lot, actually. Yeah. So uh, what do you hope people learn from the book? Well, I hope they learn what to be worried about. You know, I think a lot of people walk around today and surveys and polls bear this out, just kind of panicking, you know, and I get that because there are a lot of bad things happening right now. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of it's it's because, you know, we live in a world of a hyper fast media, you know, which I'm a part of um, new tools that just are constantly shouting at you every day each and every day, um, and you don't know what to tell, what's real, what's not, what you should be really concerned about, what you shouldn't be. And so I really hope people look at this and kind of get a better sense of like, okay, what's the real risk situation out there? What should you really be concerned about? What should you really be working on? Um, and you know, Because to me, these are some of the most important problems facing us. They go beyond just the sort of day-by-day news we see to like megacycles that will affect centuries. 
And so I really hope people get that. And I hope that actually makes them feel a little bit better because it helps them put that in context. So for one thing, they know that we've always lived under certain kinds of threat. That's not something that just started, you know, in 2016, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's also things we can do about that. And I met a lot of people at the course that are reporting this book who are deeply, you know, working really hard to avert these risks, whether they're at NASA and dealing with asteroids, whether they're volcanologists, whether they're epidemiologists in the front lines of these diseases, whether they're biologists who are actually trying to craft rules around using these new technologies to make them safer. You know, so that makes me feel much better. You know, I, you know, I, we, my wife and I had a, a, a child for the first time while I was working on this book, which I do not recommend for other authors because it's demanding. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, it did give me a real sense of, of membership in the future that goes beyond, you know, and I don't think you have to have kids to feel that. But just for me, it's sort of I can see him and it kind of makes it real in that sense. And, you know, the book begins and ends with him to a certain extent. And um, I really do have hope for the future. You know, when I, I don't think we're going extinct, ultimately. I think we can avoid those end times. You know, I really do. And it's up to us if, we, if we're going to do it. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this month's podcast. If you'd like to hear other episodes, please go to paw.princeton.edu or subscribe on Apple iTunes. Till next time.